Today we find ourselves listening in on the sixth of Jesus' seven words um, that he spoke from the cross. And it is now three o'clock on what we call Good Friday afternoon. And Jesus has been on the cross for six long, agonizing hours. And in those six hours, we have heard him speak forgiveness to his enemies, pardon to criminals, provide for his mother who was there watching her firstborn son die as a common convict. We have heard him cry out in spiritual agony of forsakenness as his father turned his face away from his sin-bearing son, not bearing his own sins, but bearing ours. And we have heard him cry out in thirst, parched in body and soul. And today we read in John chapter 19, where we left off last week, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The sixth word of Jesus from the cross is that little phrase, in our language, just three words, it is finished. In in the language of the New Testament, it's just one word, um, tetelestai. It means he's finished. It's, a, it's popular as a tattoo. Here it is in Greek, for those of you who are Greek-speaking folk. Um, though I would prefer a shorter word if it was me getting the tattoo. Um, but the brevity of Jesus' words here makes it Hard for us to understand. The brevity is understandable from the agony of the cross. He's speaking in single words at this point. But what is finished? What is he, what is he referring to with this near-dying breath that he speaks? What I don't think we should do is narrow the meaning of Jesus' words to just the end of his life, that his life is, is finished. Um, John tips us off that the meaning of the language here is fuller. In the same text, back in verse 28, where twice there he uses similar language. The words are similar in in John's writing. Where it says, Jesus knowing that all was finished, it's similar language that he's using there. And when he says it's to fulfill, or you could say to finish the scripture, it's the same kind of language that's being used there. So the idea seems to be more than merely to cease or to end. It seems fuller, like fulfill or accomplish. One scholar points out that the Hebrew of the Bible Society of Israel renders this from the word shalom or peace. And the meaning is something like peace has been made. Wholeness has been achieved. Author Fleming Rutledge helps us. She says about the meaning of it is finished. She says the English is ambiguous, but the Greek is not. It does not mean it's over. This is the end. I'm done for. It means it is completed. It is perfected. Jesus is announcing that at the precise moment where he seems to be defeated, he's actually the conqueror. He is Christus victor. 
He has done what he came into the world to do. So today, what I'd like you to do is think with me. Just think with me about all that Jesus has done on the cross that you don't have to do. And all that Jesus has borne on the cross that you don't have to bear. Um, to help us with that, I'd like us to sit and hear Jesus' words from several different perspectives. And they are our perspectives. They're the perspectives where we, we have all sat. And this morning, I want us to hear through those. So again, if you want to open your Bibles to John chapter 19, we'll be looking at this 30th verse and this short saying of Jesus together. Pray with me, would you please? Help us, Jesus, now to understand your words, what you have spoken for us to hear. Help us hear them and trust them and respond in love, greater love for you than we have held before because of what it is that you have done for us. So we declare our love to you, Jesus, and ask now that you would help us give our minds to you in this time and our lives to you when we leave. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So first, let's hear Jesus' word from the place of someone who is poor and in debt, facing an amount of debt that you can see no way to pay it back. And some of you are thinking, I got this. This is not a problem. I can, I can do this. But imagine that you're poor and in debt and you're living in a place called Croatia. A couple years ago, Croatia offered what it called a new beginning to 60,000 of its poorest citizens. The government offered a debt write-off to citizens who owed less than the equivalent of about $5,000 and were receiving some form of welfare benefits. And so for those people, this was the best of news. Their debt was forgiven. But throughout history, it's not always been that easy. And some of you know that. It's not always that easy to get out of your debts. Um, Pastor Hamsok talks about a scenario that used to happen in in the ancient Greek-speaking world. He says, when you incurred a debt you couldn't pay, you were thrown into what was known as debtor's prison. And They would write down a list of all your debts. You would have to stay in prison until it was fully paid off. The problem is, how do you pay off a debt while you're in prison? So the only way that you could do it, the only way you could get out of debtor's prison was if somebody else came on your behalf and paid the debt. And after paying them off, he says they would take the list of all of your debts and write a single word across it, that word, to telestai. It means it is finished. It is paid in full. Essentially, they were saying, this is your freedom. Not only that, this is your safety. Keep this receipt and no one can ever accuse you of these same debts again. And then he applies it to us in our day. And he says, with our sins, we have racked up a debt we could not pay. We were imprisoned and slaves to sin, a list of debt against us. Every angry outburst has been written down, every lust-filled look, every cheating business deal, every overlooked orphan, 
every word of gossip, every ignoring of the scriptures, every failure to pray, and on and on and on. This is what bars us in prison. This is the list that the enemy, the accuser, reads over us every time we wake up. And throughout our day, there's an underlying sense of guilt and shame about us that can be overwhelming and even paralyzing. But then he points out something has happened to this list too. And he points us to this scripture in Colossians chapter 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He says this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands was nailed to the cross and Jesus with his blood declared over it that word, to tetelestai. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. And then he adds, the cross of Jesus is now your receipt. Psalm 49 describes the depth of this soul indebtedness that every man carries. It says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. But, but thanks be to God, right, that Jesus said, the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has paid your debt in full. You will never have to make another payment. It will never be held against you. And that's why we sing that Jesus paid it all, right? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Tetelestai, it is finished. Our sin debt has been fully and forever paid by Jesus' cross work. No outstanding debt remains. You and your debt are fully and finally forgiven. Okay. Let's hear Jesus' words from another place. Let's hear them from the place of a prisoner, a specific prisoner. His name is Paul Gadell, and on July 26th, way back in 1911, uh, Gadell, who was 17 at that time, robbed, robbed and murdered 73-year-old William H. Jackson, who was a wealthy broker, um, and was a guest at the Iroquois Hotel on West 44th Street in New York City, where Gadell was working as a bellhop. Gadell was arrested two days later, he was convicted of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to a minimum of 20 years of prison. And then it seems like he just got lost in the system because it wasn't until somebody pointed out that he was still in prison in 1974 that he was offered parole. Now, by then, Goodell is 80 years old. He spent 63 years, his entire adult life, in prison, and he has no family. He didn't think he could make it on the outside. So he chose to remain in prison for another six years until finally, uh, I believe it was uh, 
May of 1980, Goodell left prison. He served the longest prison sentence in United States history. And I could imagine that they could have stamped across his release papers, it is finished. You, you, you served your sentence. Now, the, the problem is we are not like Paul Goodell. And some of you are thinking, isn't that a good thing? We're, we're not like a murderer. Um, we're not like him, because, but because we are like this lady. We are like this lady. Her name is Chamoy Tipiazzo from Thailand. So she got involved in a pyramid scheme in Thailand that defrauded people out of millions of dollars. The problem was some of the people she defrauded were in the royal family. Um, So she was arrested and she was sentenced to 141,078 years in prison for her offense. It is, best I could tell, the longest prison sentence that has ever been handed down. How are we like her? See, like her, our sin carries a penalty that we simply cannot pay. It carries a sentence that we could never, never repay. And it bears a severity that we could not bear. The Bible uses the language, when it describes the severity of the judgment of our sin, it describes it, it uses the language of wrath. Um, and the scriptures are vivid. Listen, listen to the prophets. Listen to Ezekiel. This is horrifying language that Ezekiel uses as he speaks for God. God says in Ezekiel 22, as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath and I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with a fire of my wrath and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. This is the terrifying penalty that comes with sin. But mercifully, and I mean that Literally, mercifully, the New Testament teaches us that this wrath penalty is spared us because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Romans, Paul writes about it in familiar verses. He says, while we're still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And we often miss the next verse, which is equally beautiful. It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He says it again in 1 Thessalonians. He talks about waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay. There's a theologian named Matt Jensen, and he writes very densely about this. I'm going to put it on the screen so you can track along with me, because I think he says something very important. He says, consider 
God's wrath poured out on Christ as the deepest display of Trinitarian love the world has ever known. The God who is love is only ever loving in himself and in relation to his creation. His anger then is the form his love takes when it runs into sin. In his wrath, God fights sin and judges sinners. But how does he fight sin? By taking the very place of the very sinners he judges. As Karl Barth put it, Jesus is the judge who is judged in our place. The penalty has been paid. The sentence has been served. He has taken our place and our punishment. It is finished. Justice is fully satisfied. Tetelestai. You need never serve another day of the penalty that's assigned to your sin. Indeed, Jesus, Jesus paid it all. Sit with me now from the place of someone who is a counselee, okay? The counselor is meeting with you and your spouse, and you are separated and tragically headed towards divorce. There's been unfaithfulness and that with a close friend and more than once, and you're more like enemies now than spouses, You're living apart and not talking to one another, and when you do talk, you almost wish you were back to where you weren't talking because the words wound so deeply. And the counselor meets with you over and over, week after week, and he counsels you and he advises you and he prays for you. By the way, that's the best kind of counselor to find, counselor who will pray for you. Um, And then... There's a breakthrough. And there's genuine sorrow for wrongs done and there's mercy and kindness and forgiveness extended and there's hugs and all that stuff, right? And then there's a ceremony. There's a vow renewal. And when the ceremony's done, you say to yourself, to Telestai, it's finished. We're reconciled. We are are fully reconciled. And see, we, like the counselee in our story, we have been horribly estranged from God by our sins. And the Bible often uses the language of unfaithfulness to God to describe our sins, of infidelity towards God, even adultery towards God. And again, the prophets use shocking language with this. Listen to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah says, how, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish him for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? But again, mercifully, and I mean that literally, mercifully, the scriptures say, 
that though we have been unfaithful to God, those who trust in Jesus have been fully reconciled by Jesus' good work on the cross. Not just as our counselor, but as a mediator who gave his life for us as a ransom so that we could be reconciled to God. This is common language to describe the fruit of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Paul says it in this passage in Romans 5. Listen for it. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Over and over and over, he says it. We have been reconciled to God because of what Christ has done. Jesus has done all of the reconciling work that is needed for you to be rightly restored to God. To tell us that. It is finished. We, the unfaithful ones who were once wholly estranged from God, have now been fully reconciled. And we enjoy the love and the welcome, the acceptance of our God. One more perspective. Listen to these words of Jesus from the perspective of a slave. A particular slave named Harriet who was born here in our state in North Carolina back in the year 1813. For the first six years of her life, Harriet lived in a comfortable home with her parents and her brother, not even realizing she was a slave. But when her mother died, Harriet soon learned that she wasn't free. At age 15, she had a new master, Dr. James Norcom, and he pursued and he harassed Harriet while Norcom's wife oppressed her and seeking to protect herself, Harriet turned to a white unmarried lawyer and bore him two children. Norcom retaliated by sending Harriet to a plantation to work as a field hand and not wanting her children to become plantation slaves, she ran away before they could join her there. And with the help of sympathetic neighbors, both black and white, she made her way to her grandmother's home and for the next seven years, Harriet lived in a tiny cubbyhole under the front porch roof. The confined space was nine feet by seven feet with a sloping ceiling only three foot high at one end. She shared her hiding place with rats and mice. And during this time, Harriet wrote to Norcom, asking him to sell her the children, and he refused. However, the children's white father did buy the boy and girl, allowing them to stay with Harriet's grandmother, and hiding even from her children, Harriet would squint through a peephole, hoping to catch a glimpse of them playing outside. And then in 1842, Harriet escaped to the north, and two years later, her children joined her there. But still, she was not really free. She was in danger of being returned to slavery by Dr. Norcom, who was pursuing her, and the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. Complete liberation did not come until Harriet was 40 years old and when her employer bought her freedom for $300. Harriet Jacobs, that's her name, knew about slavery and fear and brutality. She experienced the pain of a family torn apart, the indignity of being sold as property, and the uncertainty of living at the whim of someone else. Harriet wrote about her life experiences, and in 1861, 
The year the Civil War began, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, her book was published. And in that book, Harriet wrote these words about her years as a slave. She said, only by experience can anyone realize how deep and dark and foul is that pit of abominations. But this is how she ended her book. She said, these are the concluding words, reader, my story ends with freedom. And so does ours. That's how our story ends. Because scripture uses the language of slavery to describe our relationship to, to sin. Jesus answers and says in verse, uh, John 8, rather, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Titus, in Titus 3, says this, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But mercifully, and again, I I use that literally, mercifully, the scripture also uses the language of rescue and deliverance to describe the finished work of Jesus in redeeming us from the bondage of sin and death. Romans 6, Paul writes, If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The writer of Hebrews uses this same language of being set free from slavery when he talks about death. He says in in chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things Jesus did. That through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So by his finished work on the cross, Jesus has rescued us. He has delivered us. He has set us free. He has wholly redeemed us from bondage to sin. To tell us that. It is finished. He has done it all. All of this he has done, and really so much more, um, Jesus did. In his finished work on the cross, one, one writer says that this word is an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. Okay. There's so much here. What does it mean? What does it mean for us that the work of Jesus on the cross is finished? I ran across an, an article by a pastor named Jared Huffman in and I found it helpful. I'll, sh- I'll share a part of it with you. He says, he says that most mistakes have a shelf life. When you get a speeding ticket, he says it takes two to five years for it to come off your driving record. He says, trust me on this one. For unpaid financial accounts, it takes seven years for it to come off your credit report. Essentially, he says at some point after time has passed, your record can be clean again. It'll be new, really new. It will be as if nothing has ever been held against you. 
But as you wait for the mistakes to roll off your account, you live in the uncomfortable dissonance that your record is affecting your life. You live with an eye in the rearview mirror, praying not to see the bright red and blue lights. You frantically scrutinize your financial statements, double-checking even simple transactions. Whether it's a driving history or a credit history, most of us live, he says, with the reality that our records are far from perfect. Not only that, but our records are counted against us. And if we're not careful, things will get worse before they get better. Then he says this. He says, unfortunately, I live my spiritual life in the same way. When I make mistakes, what the Bible calls sin, he says the shelf life seems to start. If it's a big sin, I feel as if I will need to stay out of God's way for quite some time. Perhaps I need to ensure that I don't bring him any prayer requests, and certainly that I don't draw near to him for grace, especially if I've already asked for grace about this particular sin. Basically, I feel like I need to keep a low profile and not make things worse. The same thing tends to happen with smaller violations as well. While the burden doesn't seem overwhelming, he says it still makes me feel better if I can do something particularly holy to kind of even out my account. And then while I live in this delicate balance of waiting, waiting for my record to clear, waiting for the good to outweigh some of the bad, waiting for some time to pass between this sin and my next sin, just like the speeding ticket, I'm hoping someday it will go away and that I don't make anything worse in the meantime. But in John 19.30, as we've been seeing, he says, Jesus says, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in that moment, with an eternal and unchangeable consequences, Jesus had fully accomplished paying for all of your sin. That includes, he says, the sinful nature you inherited in Adam, the sinful record you racked up, even the sins that you haven't gotten around to yet. It includes all of the massive moral failures, the thoughtless minor league violations, and the ghastly posture of self-sufficiency that's most offensive of all. He says, make no mistake about it. Jesus paid it all. He said the word for finished at that time literally meant paid in full. There will be no debt. There will be no charges. There will be no punishment. And no shelf life. And I would add, there'll be no additional work required. So in my office, uh, I have framed this painting. Um, It's a Rembrandt. It's the painting of the prodigal son. The one in my office is not the original. Um, (laughs) But it's a good reminder of God's mercy towards me. A prodigal, right? But uh, it is a fabulous, fabulous work of art. Even someone trained in engineering, not trained in art, can recognize this. This is a masterpiece. But imagine if I took it down off my wall and I decided I would add a few touches to it. Maybe something kind of like this. Maybe some hats, some glasses. Everybody needs a beard. Um... Birds, because it's the only animal that I can draw, obviously. Um, What have I done to Rembrandt's work? I have ruined it. I have ruined it. Rembrandt's work does not need my help. 
It is a masterpiece. Jesus' finished work does not need you to add things onto it. Your little tiny works of art tacked all over, sticky noted all over it. It's enough for you. It covers all your sins. No more guilt, no more shame, no more penance. Just grace greater than our sin. This is not easy to grasp. Fleming Rutledge says, there's no aspect of Christian faith more difficult for us to believe. It's in the nature of the human being to think that Christ's work could not possibly be finished, that we have to do more, we have to add to it, we have to earn it. We think that Christ's work is somehow not complete, that we have to do something further in order to earn its benefits. And Jesus told us that's not true. When on the cross he says, it is finished. It is finished for you and for me. And for all who believe and trust in Jesus, it is finished. And so today, we are here to declare together that we are like a debtor with an unpayable mountain of debt. And Jesus says to us, I have paid your sin debt in full. It is finished. We are like a prisoner whose sentence exceeds our lifetime. A thousand times over. And Jesus says to us, I have served your sentence in your place. It is finished. We are like an adulterer whose relationship is irreparably broken. And Jesus says to us, I have reconciled you to your God. It is finished. We are like a slave who can never really be free, always looking over our shoulder, awaiting for that old master to capture us once again. And Jesus says to us, I have purchased your freedom finally and fully. You are truly and forever free from that master. It is finished. Jesus is saying this for us to hear, to telestai. It is is finished. We don't have to work for it. It's a gift. It is finished. We don't have to earn it. It's grace. It is finished. We don't have to add on to it. It is enough. And so today, as you come to this table, and you remember the work that Jesus did on the cross, his body broken, and his life's blood shed for you, his finished work, remember that it's enough for all of your sins, all of them. So come to the table today, and as you do, renew your trust in Jesus, that what he did is enough. Trust that the beauty and power of his finished work is enough even for you, even for those secret, dark, hidden sins that nobody knows about, the ones that you've gone back to over and over and over. It's enough for those, all of them. 
What Jesus has done is enough. And so as you come to the table, renew your love for him because he has done this for you. His finished work is an expression of his love for you. And come to this table and remember his finished work and give thanks to him. Now some of you have never gotten to the place where your trust is wholly and solely in what Jesus did on the cross for you and so you're still trying, hoping that you're going to be good enough on that day. Okay? When the accounts are all looked at, you're hoping that you're going to be good enough. And that's why you're here this morning. You're hoping that this will be one of those good things that makes you good enough. You know, it is an unpayable debt. It is an unservable sentence. You cannot bear it. Let Jesus bear it for you. It's why he went to the cross. And so by faith, as others come to the table, this is a marvelous day for you to come to Christ and to trust him to be the bearer of all your sins fully and finally, forever and ever. Amen. And so we remember together that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he did take bread And he broke it, and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup, and he explained that it's the new covenant in his blood, and it's for the forgiveness of sins, all sins of those who trust in him. And he said, do this also in remembrance of me. The table at Northwake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ who is walking in fellowship with him, who's willing to forsake their sin and come to Christ for mercy. The table's open for you if that describes you today. And I'd like to ask you to come through this center aisle and those two far aisles along the wall and then we'll return to our seats with these two aisles right here. Pray with me, please.